Greetings and welcome to Our Social Landscape. In lieu of posting a written article for Our Social Landscape this time around, I thought I'd mix things up and post a short podcast. There are a number of things going on in the world that I would like to write about and that I am writing about, but with COVID-19 dominating our reality these days, I decided to ask a colleague of mine some questions and post that for the current iteration of my blog. So I would like to introduce Dr. Penny Devine, who is Professor of Psychology at Florida State College at Jacksonville. Penny did her training at the University of Florida, and despite being a Gator, I think she can still provide some useful contributions to the current discourse surrounding this virus. So welcome to my blog, Penny, and if you don't mind, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, well thank you for having me here in your beautiful open-air office. I appreciate you importing the uh, floor sunshine today. Um, let's see, um, I, I was a student at University of Florida. I went there for both my undergrad in English and education, uh, well a master's in education, and then graduate work additionally in um, social psychology. Uh, my areas of interest have been primarily looking at uh, stereotyping and prejudice, uh, but I also did some additional work with my advisor looking at um, data sets uh, from, the, from the CDC in the area of health psychology, primarily focusing on risk avoidance. Um, I'm also interested in biracial identity, procedural justice issues. Um, all kind of cool stuff. All kind of cool stuff. All right. And how long have you been at FSCJ? Uh, I've been at FSCJ since 2007, so about 13 years. Uh, I also teach online part-time at the University of North Florida, teaching social psychology courses there as well, and um, an online university where I teach graduate social psych courses. All right. Well, great. Thank you uh, for agreeing to being on the show. So for posterity's sake, I just want to briefly run down our current situation on this 11th day of April, 2020. So at the end, tail end of 2019, China confirmed there were numerous cases of what they were calling an unknown flu, and the first Chinese fatality was about two weeks later in mid-January. Later in January, the first case in the U.S. was reported in Washington State, uh, maybe Seattle, outside Seattle, I can't recall. And on January 30th, the World Health Organization declared a global health emergency, and two weeks later they officially called it Coronavirus Disease 2019, or COVID-19 for short. First American died of the virus at the end of February, and President Trump then began to restrict travel from certain parts of the world. Trump later declared a national emergency on March 13th. A little later in March, the decision was made to postpone the 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo, which is a huge deal. It takes years and years to get those you know, planned and up and running, so that, that's a major shift. And by the end of March, the U.S. had taken the lead with the most confirmed cases in the world. Woo-woo, number one. As for Florida specifically, the first uh, confirmed case was March 1st, and on March 9th, Governor DeSantis declared a state of emergency. Six days later, Walt Disney closed their parks. (laughs) On March 13th, Governor DeSantis closed the public schools, and they remain closed today in terms of campuses at least. Public schools throughout the state have moved to online Instruction on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day of all days, Governor DeSantis ordered all bars and restaurants to close, eventually limiting restaurants to takeout delivery orders only. Professor Devine and I were at Cantina Louie, (laughs) pondering all the changes occurring around us when this disastrous news hit. Jacksonville Mayor Lenny Curry closed all Duval County beaches on March 20th, and those remain closed along with St. John's and Nassau County beaches. A week ago, uh, Friday, April 3rd, the governor issued a statewide lockdown order which means that only businesses deemed essential can remain open. Currently, 
Florida has a little over 17,000 confirmed cases with approximately 400 deaths out of a population of around 22 million people. So that's our backdrop. And so, Penny, let me start by asking you about the field of psychology specifically. I'm a sociologist, and we can view the current COVID-19 situation in a lot of different ways. And I'm sure there are people working on projects as we speak in both of our fields. The more micro-leaning sociologists, which uh, will sort of abut psychology, might examine the effects of social isolation on people or how the virus and the people associated with it are presented in the media. Other sociologists might examine the role of social media and the increased importance now since people are distancing. Uh, more macro-level approaches in sociology might examine the economic implications of these lockdown policies, which is interesting to me, or inequalities involved in who gets the disease and who's most likely to get the best treatment. Some people are still having to ride the bus to work and are you know, exposing themselves potentially to infection. Others have jobs that allow them to sit in their pool and drink beer and listen to Jimmy Buffett all day. Uh, and the, if I could borrow a term from Peter Tosh, how does the American healthcare shitstem contribute to these difficulties? So what are some of the ways uh, that your field overall, and maybe specifically to you, can inform discussions about COVID-19? Well, I think similar to sociology um, and psychology, there are a multitude of ways that we can look at you know, the impact of COVID. Um, I think certainly the mental health perspective has been huge at this point as people have you know, struggled with fear and anxiety related to COVID. Uh, additionally, people are struggling with you know, social distancing um, or social isolation as some people perceive it. Um, I think that the mental health perspective has been huge and the response has been pretty huge as people are concerned about fear and anxiety in response to um, you know, the pandemic. Um, as a social psychologist, I'm probably more interested in situational variables that impact, um, you know, uh, people as they're struggling with this. So I was listening to the news yesterday, another um, story about um, an attack of an Asian family. And so I think about things like that and um, theories like scapegoat theory of intergroup conflict and what it would say about things like that. You know, historically, we can look at things like... Um, I think the first study I ever read on scapegoat theory was was one looking at, um, and, and, and in general, what it what that theory looks at is the impact of like crisis and how we select groups to blame for that crisis, um, you know, and subsequently, you know, engage in prejudice or discriminatory behaviors or harmful behaviors in some cases. So, um, in one of the early studies, they looked at the impact of cotton prices or economic crisis and um, the relationship of that to lynchings of African-Americans. Hmm. And so um, as cotton prices went down, lynchings went up and so on over like a 30-year period or maybe four-year period of that study. And so now I think uh, similarly we're looking at the impact of, um, you know, people's fear and anxiety over COVID and discrimination against Asians because of, as our president called it, the China virus. The China virus, yeah, that doesn't um, help. No, it doesn't help at all. Um, and so things like that interest um, and, and concern me. Mm -hmm. so. All right. Uh, thank you. One thing uh, we've probably all noticed is the variance in how people are reacting to the pandemic. Uh, some folks follow the news all day, take any and all possible measures to avoid the world. It seems like they can't get enough of everything that's happening with it, and they're checking every web page and database. Uh, other people try to move about their daily life while trying to maintain as much normalcy as they can. Uh, psychologically, what are some factors do you think that influence 
uh, how people acted before COVID was a big issue and why would some people take it more seriously than others? What is going on with people you think, you know, at least, at least one element of it that makes some people pay attention to it long ago and other people still hardly really too worried about it? Sure, I think that's a, a huge question, an interesting question. Um, I mean, when I think about, you know, personality psychology, I'm not a personality psychologist, but definitely I think they would have a lot to say, you know, and trying to predict who is going to react in different ways. And so if we stick to simple things like introversion versus extroversion, I mean, we've all seen memes probably joking about how introverts have waited their entire lives for this moment, right, you know, <laughs> right. to stay home and... Um, and they're enjoying this while extroverts are struggling. So their compliance with social distancing may be, you know, a greater function of that particular personality variable. Um, if we look at, you know, more, you know, trait dimensions, I mean, people who are high in neuroticism, for example, might be more likely to scour the Internet looking for, you know, new executive orders to share on social media with all of their people. Does, whereas, what does that do for them? Like, why would they do that? Does it just make them feel like they're first in the know? Or is it just confirming things that they're afraid of or what? You know, it's that's that's an, I I don't I don't claim to be a personality psychologist, and I actually have pondered this a lot as I've been um, inundated and stressed by some of these posts myself. Um, and I don't, you know, as a social psychologist, I find these variables predictive. I find them interesting, but I don't necessarily find it as useful because we can't necessarily impact people's personalities, right? So they're going to do what they're going to do, and perhaps it gives them a, a greater sense of control. And I'll talk a little bit more about about perceptions of control later, but, um, you know, I'm more interested in situational variables that we can influence that may move people's behavior around. Um, I mean, explaining why some people do it is interesting, but if I can't change those variables, then, um, you know, those individual personality variables are not as interesting to me. But if we look at things like, um, there was a study that I read, it wasn't a peer-reviewed study, to be clear, something in maybe a Psychology Today journal magazine or something, but someone did this survey asking people, you know, how seriously they took things and how willing they were to take action. And only about 49% of the people in this initial survey of about, I don't know, a couple hundred people across 38 states, um, only about 49% were even worried at that point. Um, but among, I think what was more interesting was differentiating between people who were taking it seriously and those who weren't. And the two factors that most consistently predicted um, who would take action were, were fear and hope. Yeah. So inducing fear historically, you know, in psychology, it's something that I've looked at in some of the, the research and on STDs, for example. Um, you know, fear appeals can influence people's behavior, right? Mm -hmm. But it's important to induce the right amount of fear. So if we induce for STD production, you know, or, you know, in a pandemic like this, low levels of fear, people aren't likely to change their behavior because like, eh, it's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. If we induce too much fear, then it freaks people out and they either are paralyzed or they like bury their head in the sand mm -hmm. and still do nothing. Mm -hmm. But inducing that kind of optimal level of moderate fear, especially if you couple it with something like um, perceptions of self-efficacy can actually lead to change. Oh, if I use condoms, I can reduce my risk by 90%. Mm -hmm. All right, I'll do that. If I buy toilet paper, right. will I protect my family? Right, right. <laughs> if know, I stay locked in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so people, although I think people have been more successful at buying toilet paper than social distancing or staying locked in. Sure. Um, but I, I think that's important. And then also hope was the other variable. And I was thinking about that. 
and how hope is, um, you know, if I think of hope as, as more like the optimistic bias, okay. then no one's surprised at the positive impact of that and, you know, engaging change or behavior. Um, because we know that the power of positive thinking is real. You know, even in contexts like um, treating cancer, we know that positive thinking can move the needle. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, having hope, I think, would be powerful. And I also think if we flip that and look at hopelessness, or if I take it a step further and like think of powerlessness, right? Then of course people who feel hopeless and powerless aren't doing anything mm -hmm. different because they don't feel like, you know, they'll have a block party because they don't think that, right. you know, anything they do can, can really impact their outcomes. So how, yeah, how does hope play out uh, in the context of this? If you have hope, then that means you're more likely to, uh, to follow kind of the instructions and self-isolate and things like that is that how it translates I think both fear and hope are only effective ways of inducing change behavior change if you combine them with self-efficacy okay. like a feeling that I can do something to change my outcome if I don't feel if I feel powerless then sure. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do anything differently so if you tell me to wear masks I'll wear masks if you tell me to buy gloves I'll buy gloves if you tell me to buy toilet paper I will buy so much toilet paper <laughs> that people will you <laughs> right. know Get riot <laughs> So. All right, good. Thank you. And this one's kind of related. Um, another sort of interesting related issue is what factors do you think influence how people deal with the fear that it's causing and the resulting social isolation? And you touched on this a little bit with the introverts and extroverts, but the introverts still might be fearful, uh, even though they don't really want to be around people, they still could be fearful of it. So what might, you know, if, if you could add anything to, to what you just said, um, what do you think could influence how people are dealing with fear and the social isolation? Um, you know, I mean, first I do want to say um, that I think that some of these variables play out differently in different cultural contexts, right? So I think in our, you know, in the U.S., um, you know, I think that we're struggling with the fact that some of the methods that are successful in other countries are not as successful here. Um, but I think if we, if I go back to that, this idea of self-efficacy, I think that um, that's probably the most adaptive um, and helpful response is mm -hmm. that if we increase people's individual feelings of self-efficacy, so they feel like, all right, what I'm doing makes a difference, we're likely to get, you know, a positive um, effect. Otherwise, I mean, increasing perceptions of fear or scarcity, you know, so people are freaking out and they're terrified, we're going to get paranoid, panicked behavior mm -hmm. um, that I don't think is, is going to be as adaptive or helpful. Um, and so... People that deal with social isolation positively, or at least not as, uh, you know, they're not panicking about it. Do you think um, this is good, like kind of healthy in that way, or is it, uh, or, or is it maybe just keeping um, keeping them too restricted and too narrow, just giving them an excuse to not interact or be so to be like civically involved? When you, when you mentioned something about um, people not acting on any anything because they don't feel, you know, they, they feel kind of hopeless, that was my first thought is like with media, sometimes uh, kind of the, the structural functional view of media, the dysfunction of media could be that it has this kind of nar narcotizing effect where we just don't, we fail to act on anything mm -hmm. because we don't view it as like, oh, what can I do about that? I've seen all these commercials with the starving kids in Africa and you got to call in and send money and we just flip the channel to somewhere else you know instead of saying oh my god how are we letting human beings live that way you know right. and so like it becomes almost a narcotic it just kind of dulls you and then it keeps you from it so that was what i was trying to get at with people that are introverted that are enjoying kind of the lockdown does that exacerbate that problem 
Um, I definitely think it can, especially the way that you framed it. Um, I, I don't think that presenting, you know, problems to people alone is necessarily going to lead to action. And so, um, and especially if we take into account that they are fearful about their own, you know, their own outcomes. Um, so maybe increasing some kind of accountability or, mm -hmm. again, if we give people some sense of social responsibility, like mm -hmm. trying to prime that in some way, mm -hmm. um, that we're, we would see, you know, more positive um, outcomes in that way. Mm -hmm. um, when I think about the social isolation and the, you know, other negative impacts, I mean, there, there really are real, I mean, obviously negative impacts of social isolation mentally. Um, you know, I think we've seen that in all the media. We all know that like calls to suicide hotlines have gone up, mm -hmm. um, but there are also negative like health, like physical outcomes associated with social right, isolation. Right. They mm -hmm. find that people who are isolated, like, um, you know, have more health problems, you know, cardiovascular, blood pressure, things mm -hmm. that, you know, mm -hmm. you'd be surprised to hear. Um, and I think some of the key and addressing that might be in reducing perceptions of social isolation. And that might be kind of what some of what you're getting at. Mm -hmm. So if we can mobilize people in some way from their homes to, you know, uh, certainly technology has helped a lot with that. Yeah, people sure. really aren't that isolated. Sure, I mean, sure. People are having work meetings from home. People are working out at home. Kids are having school from home, all using technology. Support groups, teleconferencing from physicians okay. and from you know, mental health specialists. So there are a million ways. People are having happy hours right, on right, Zoom. Right. I mean, it's kind of amazing, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, my kindergartners doing these meetings, these, you know, sort of virtual meetings with 15 kindergartners and the teacher, God bless her. Yeah. <laughs> Herding cats is what, it, you know, it's kind of what it looks like. 20 kids talking at once, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, but you're right. So they, you know, it's not the same, but it is a lot different than in the past, that kind of isolation. Uh, so let me move on because you mentioned something about um, other countries or other cultures, and your matrilineal descent is South Korean, correct? Absolutely. So... Um, South Korea had one of the earliest large-scale outbreaks of COVID-19 outside of China, but it peaked at the end of February, thanks in part to uh, they had wide-scale testing and digital contact tracing, you know, where they followed people that had it and followed them back, followed them back, followed them back, lockdowns, things like that. And at this point, only about 200 people have died there, and 200 is 200, but it's still a lot less than most places. And they have less cases there than we have here just in Florida alone. Uh, there's even talk that they'll start baseball again in May, uh, the Korean Baseball League, with no fans, but um, the league will get together, and they haven't decided for sure if they're going to do it, but if they do, they'll be the first major sports league in the world to start again, you know, to kind of get things going again. So more of a personal question, I guess, than a truly psychological one, but what might be some relevant ways that South Korea is culturally different than the U.S.? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I think, you know, you highlighted certainly some of the logistical differences and why their, you know, uh, their path has been different than ours. Um, but... If, if you want to talk about cultural differences, I mean, I think if we combine a different kind of governance, right? Mm -hmm. um, I can't even imagine in the United States, um, you know, like they did in you know Korea, the GPS tracking, and in, in other places where people were forced to download apps, I think in Beijing, um, you know, so that they could be trapped and, uh, tracked and the police could monitor, you know, movement and, and behavior. But um, if we combine with a different, a different style of governance, a different kind of respect for authority, right, okay. deference to authority, okay. with a more collectivist, you know, approach where we value the um, welfare of the, you know, the community above my personal freedoms, then, yeah, I mean, I would say it's, it's challenging. In the United States, we struggle with, you know, 
restriction of our personal freedoms. I mean, social distancing is killing most of us because, like, what do you mean I can't do X, Y, or Z? Mm -hmm. um, whereas I think, um, you know, in East Asian cultures like South Korea, um, it's much more normative. I mean, absolutely, you uh, prioritize the welfare of your community above your own desire to go to the gym. <laughs> Getting close to the bone there for you, isn't it? A little, a little close to the bone for me. <laughs> um, yeah, deference to authority is a good one because it's strange because in the U.S. Uh, we say we have deference to authority. We celebrate the police. We celebrate you know the military. Um, we kind of, you know, one of the factors when you look at uh, like the Global Peace Initiative of countries that are uh, more likely to be in conflict are countries that celebrate uh, warriors as heroes and view violence as a legitimate form of peace, of uh, conflict resolution, and things like that. And we're high on those scales, but yet we don't really want the government government telling us <laughs> what to do or when to That's do right. it. And that you know the fear of being tracked and traced and 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 whatnot is, is I think part of our. I don't know if it's completely unique to us, but we have a unique way of it playing out. I think of our just kind of independent, you know, wild west kind of way of, of thinking. Absolutely, I think if you told people that tracking your movements, your every movement, will prevent this virus from continuing, but you might it might jeopardize, you know, like their access to your information in the future. Mm -hmm. I don't think. Right. I think we'd be, you know, pressed to make that choice. Do you think that's a legitimate concern in South Korea? Is it a legitimate concern if if they do give up that information? Are there people that are abusing it and using their data for illicit purposes, or uh, is it not an issue there because it just doesn't happen as much as it would happen here? Uh, that's a great question. I'm not sure that. Um, I mean, I think that things are so culturally different that I'm not even sure that question makes as much sense there as it does here. Mm -hmm, probably not. Uh -huh. Okay. All right, last one. Uh, two parts to this question. Do you think there's a collective psychology or a national psyche that we have in the country? And if so, hopefully your answer is yes. Otherwise, my <laughs> next question will be moot. Uh, how do you think it will be altered when all this is said and done? So if we have a national way of viewing things, we have a national identity, then, you know, sociologists do these studies on values, and they list 12, 14 values that are American values, and, and they often will, will conflict with each other. They can contradict each other. We value uh, equality, but we also historically have valued racism. So they can conflict, but if we do have a national kind of mindset or psyche, do you think it will be altered uh, by the, these events we're dealing with right now with COVID-19 and, and whatnot down the road? Or will things just kind of go back to the world the way they were, you know, two years down the road or whatnot? All right. Uh, that's a lot there. Yes. Um, do I think that we sort of have a national psyche right now? I mean, I, I think we do. Like, I think after, you know, when we're in the midst of, you know, national crises, you know, when we think about post 9-11 America, right, patriotism, you know, like, mm -hmm. and there were some, you know, uh, a, there was at least a difference in sort of our, you know, kind of nationalistic collective identity a little bit. Um, having a shared enemy, you know, okay. brought some people together. Sure. I think right now, I mean, there's definitely in some ways, you know, um, a kind of a shared group identity. When we're walking wherever we're walking, um, since we're not supposed to be walking very many places, right. um, and we see strangers, we have things to talk about them with that we never did before. We can all mm -hmm. joke about social distancing. We can all joke about homeschooling our children and how we didn't, you know, choose to be teachers and so on. Um, and people get it, right? All these memes now about COVID and, you know, isolation, everyone... Um, 
you know, we can all laugh at those jokes because we have this big shared experience. I think that despite the fact that we're seeing on social media, um, you know, images of people fighting over toilet paper, I think that there is, um, you know, sort of more support for each other than we're seeing depicted. You know, I think people are, you know, trying to buy groceries for their elderly neighbors or ordering things and having them sent to people that can't do things for themselves. Um, more so than we sometimes see mm. <clears throat> because of, you know, we're in this time of crisis. Is there going to be a shift? I mean, aside from the rejoicing in the streets that, you know, we <laughs> right. can go back to living um, our lives normally again. I can go to concerts again at restaurants and wherever. Um, aside from that, I mean, I'm troubled and concerned. You know, I worry that um, what little bit of shift we've seen in taking care of each other um, is going to revert back to, you know, kind of this competitive individualistic place where people are competing for whatever's left. I mean, we don't talk a lot about what's happening with businesses and, you know, people's jobs. But, right. you know, earlier I mentioned the impact on mental health. I mean, when we think about suicide rates, right, and unemployment rates right now, unemployment is a, you know, well-established predictor of, of um, you know, being a risk factor for suicide. One in three people who commit suicide are um, unemployed. And, I mean, what are, six million was the last I heard in terms of current applications for unemployment. Current, right, right. Um, and when this is over, of course people intend or would like to hire back their employees, but the reality is that that's not going to be able to happen. Um, so do I worry about that shift? Yes. You know, for a lot of logistical and practical reasons, I don't think we're going to be able to maintain whatever kind of brief cohesiveness we formed. Um, because I, don't know. Mm -hmm. I would think there's kind of a, of a cultural, um, psyche that we have that, that lot, not a, necessarily a really good one at times that we're kind of America, we're the big dog, you know, we're number one. Um, and I wonder if, this is going to knock us off our pedestal a little bit in our in our minds, like collectively, like if people are are saying, wait a minute, you know, we didn't really handle this that well. Uh, our administration told us various things at different times. Some were correct, some weren't. Our healthcare system was not up, up to par. And a lot of people erroneously think we have the best healthcare system in the world, and we don't by most scales. And so I wonder if maybe that will expose some of these flaws, and not in a way that is... A, that provides cynicism, but in a way that provides construction and ways right. to, to help society, you know, kind of evolve. You know, I, I don't want to say people are going to be scared into movement, but maybe that would kind of happen. I would love it if that happened, um, but I'm really skeptical. Yeah. You know, I would love to think that we'd learn from our mistakes and we'd move forward and, and hopefully there will be some positive change. But I think that, you know, as people, we tend to have these defense mechanisms in place. I think we're already trying to scapegoat people. We're going to blame certain people. I don't think that it's going to uh, really knock us down. I think that we're going to blame people for the parts, you know, that didn't work well mm -hmm. during this crisis. Um, we're definitely going to maintain this idea that we are, you know, that American, American number one. Mm -hmm. um, but, I mean, I hope I'm wrong. Um, but, but I am skeptical about, about that. Um, I think there will always be critics and people who point these things out, but I think there will be others that, um, you know. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much. That was a uh, very informative uh, interview for me. I really appreciate you doing that. Um, is, do you want to give your email if you have questions? Anybody that's listening to this, if they want to uh, email? Absolutely. You can reach me at pdevine, P-D-E-V-I-N-E, at fscj.edu. 
thank you for having me here today. Yeah, sure. And everybody uh, knows you can comment on my blog, Our Social Landscape, if you log in. And uh, you can put comments right there. And, of course, you can always email me as well. So thank you all for listening. And thank you for Dr. Penny Devine. And I uh, hope everyone has a great week. All right, thank you.